do you like laws? Yeah, one of the things that doesn't necessarily get you the most excited, but I have a feeling it kind of goes a little bit like this. Uh, A little bit of yes sometimes, a little bit of no sometimes, depending on what the law is, depending on how it impacts me. We have different feelings about it. And all the laws in our country are based on the idea that individual rights must be coupled with individual responsibility. Because as you know, rights without responsibility leads to isolation and then ultimately it leads to anarchy. That liberty of freedom, uh, apart from responsibility, undermines liberty and requires more laws. So, theoretically, if we have a charter of rights and freedoms, we should also have a charter of responsibilities. But that's impossible. Because you can't legislate responsibility. And yet, without responsibility, without individual responsibility, we isolate and we divide. And the problem has been stated like this. John Adams wrote it, um, one of the American presidents, uh, explaining the, the, uh, the issue for them, the Constitution, it affects North America. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And now, we are beginning to see the problems as these ideas have been lived out and our society over time has become increasingly secular, increasingly individualized, and increasingly personal freedom focused. If people do not understand that there is a moral absolute, a sense of ought to, that stands outside of our laws and above our laws, that stands outside of our nation and above our nation, that stands as ruler, as king, and authority over our conscience, unless there is a collective sense of conscience, this thing that we're doing is not going to work. Apart from, this, um, apart from this moral obligation, this freedom experiment without a king would fail. Because when my rights infringe on your rights, who's to say who's right? And that's why we have laws. Because when rights collide, the law decides. But when you have a, peop- a group of people who have abdicated and understanding a shared sense of understanding what is ought and what is ought not to be done, then our collective conscience begins to evaporate, begins to devolve, it it begins to be undermined. And, And when that happens, you know what we need more of? More laws. And and then we realize that we need more laws. And we didn't cover that, so we need more laws and more laws, and there's got to be another way to close the loopholes. Find a way to shut those loopholes down because they're not breaking the law. They just found a completely fair and legal way to avoid everything that the law said. So we make another law and we continue to live, live with the spirit of the law instead of in, in, ignoring the spirit of the law and following the letter of the law. You didn't say that I couldn't. But the, law, but the problem with this law is that this law re- reflects the minimum requirement. How low can I go and still go home? That's what the law tells you. It tells you how low you can go and still get to go back home and not to jail. The law is what I can get by with, what I can get away with. 
It's designed to keep bad things from happening, but the law doesn't inspire us. The law doesn't inspire greatness. It doesn't inspire virtue or responsibility. Traffic laws are great, but traffic laws don't make you a courteous driver, do they? Tax laws are important, and there's even a benefit through tax law for being generous, but tax laws don't make you generous. Civil laws don't make you civil. Free speech? Come on. Free speech doesn't make you kind with your words. Laws? Laws just give us a limit. Laws just put a limit on our self-centered expressions of our rights, our sense of entitlement. And so over here we have rights. Rights, what we are entitled to. And then over here we've got the law, what we're allowed to do. If this is all you've got, this is not going to work out over time. The law protects us from each other's entitlement. That means that you can't come into my home uninvited to exercise your free speech, right? But still, none of it inspires me or causes me to go eyes up and ask, how much can I do? Instead of how low can I go? Because of this, because of human nature, these two things alone, rights and laws, they actually foster division. It fosters division. And even worse, in our culture, it's when you can make a profit from our division. And when there's a profit in division, there's great motivation to maintain it, to stoke it, to avoid unifying We see this more and more, sadly, in the way our culture works. So there's a third component that is necessary. It's always been necessary. And that third component is morality, what we ought to do. So what we're entitled to do, what we're allowed to do, what we ought to do. Now, why am I talking about this in church and on a Checkpoint Communion Sunday? Because I want to talk about morality, and our connection to the Spirit. And this is where you come in. This is where the followers of Jesus come in. This is where the church comes in. This is where the people who wake up at some point in their week or in the month, they say, Heavenly Father, I want to know your will. I want to do your will. I want to actually be a follower of Jesus. I don't want to just believe a bunch of things, static things, and then live a life that is completely disconnected from what I believe. I want my belief and my confidence and my faith in you to invade my life and to invade my relationships and my money and my generosity and the way that I treat people. I want you involved in all of it, in all of me. I want to. I commit to live a life in earnest pursuit of you, Jesus. Now, I hope you understand this part, that our legal system is appropriately decoupled from any religious absolutes. We do not want to live in a theocracy. But what we do need, what we must have, and what you can provide, what we can provide, is a national conscience. A national conscience informed by the law of Christ. Now, if you're not a religious person or you're not a Christian person, uh, you're like, okay, 
here we go. He's just trying to sneak it in another way, the law of Christ. But just hang with me for a second, okay? This is super important. The law of Christ, that phrase, it's a phrase that uh, doesn't get much airplay in the church or even in Christendom much anymore. It's unfortunate. But this phrase, the law of Christ, is a phrase that the Apostle Paul coined, and he used it to describe and to summarize Jesus' new covenant command. You remember that one? But before Jesus was crucified, right before he's dealing with his, his uh, guys and they're having supper together, and he said, Moses was your guy, right? Now I'm your guy. Moses gave you the law. I'm giving you a new law. How many? Just one. And here it is. As I have loved you, as I have honored you, treated you, cared for you, accepted you, as I have done for you, I want you to do that like I did for everybody else. And then the Apostle Paul comes along, and he was like, uh, like an award-winning Pharisee. Uh, we know that because, well, because he told us he had very good self-esteem. He listed it off. He had a very good, uh, healthy self-image. And after all of his qualifications, he says, all the great stuff that I've ever done as a, a Pharisee, it's like nasty, stinky garbage, scubala compared to following Jesus. The Apostle Paul takes the giant idea of do to others what God through Christ has done for you, and he calls it the law of Christ. And he references Galatians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, and here's what it looks like when you introduce it into the real world, out of theory and into practice. And this is why if you're not a religious person or you're not a Christian person, you should embrace this idea this is the world that you want to live in. This is the community that you want to be a part of. This is the kinds of um, kids that you want to raise. And whether you ever decide to follow Jesus or not, these ideas, if they would shape our conscience, they would address every single social ill. And perhaps almost every single legal ill that we have to deal with as a society. It would impact the way that we treat and respond to the world, to honor one another the way that God through Christ honored us. Honor one another. To honor one another means that you cannot dishonor anybody. It means that you defer to other people. It means that when you see people, you see someone initially, automatically, right out of the gate, you see somebody who's made in the image of God who reflects the image of God, someone for whom Christ died, someone as valuable as you. We honor as God through Christ honored us. I'm going to treat you honorably. Not because you necessarily deserve it, Maybe I don't even know you that well. I'm going to treat you honorably because my heavenly Father saw that you had so much value that he sent his son to pay for your sin at the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. It's a level playing field. So I'm going to honor you. What if that informed the national conscience? to care for one another the way that God through Christ has cared for us. You can't mandate care, right? You can't legislate care. Care is 
I don't have to, but I choose to. To forgive one another. The way that God through Christ forgave us, forgiveness is a gift. You can't legislate forgiveness. You can't demand forgiveness. If it's a law, it's no longer a gift. Forgiveness is a free will gift. I choose to. Forgiveness says this. You owe me because you damaged my reputation. You owe me because you you took from me. You owe me because of what you said about me. You owe me. But I'm deciding freely to cancel that debt. Imagine a national conscience connected to and formed by forgiveness to accept one another the way that God through Christ accepted us. Do you know how God accepted you? As you were. He accepted you when you were unacceptable. You're like, well, I wasn't all that unacceptable. And well, compared to some folks, you know, well, no. But that's the beauty of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he deferred. For God so loved the world that he served and he cared and he accepted. And Jesus says, okay, I want you to treat people the way that my heavenly father treated you. The way that he has ongoingly treated you. And then the next day he put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away. And take their sin away. And honestly, to take all of our excuses away to, the, to love the way that God through Christ loves us. What if that, this kingdom of God, upside down kingdom ethic, what if that shaped our national conscience? Because if it doesn't, then it's just a matter of time before it all breaks down. It all falls apart. Apostle Paul again, mega Pharisee. And, and, and then he becomes a Jesus follower. And he's writing his letters. And his letters get passed around through a bunch of churches in the first century. And he's writing this one particular letter. And it's going to Judean and Gentile Christians. <coughs> and he's reminding them, hey, hey, you are not under the old law. But he's warning them. He says, you're not under that law. But don't do what most people do when the restrictions are lifted. Now, I'm pretty sure that there's someone out there, in here maybe even, who might just remember the first time that you were able to get into one of your parents' cars. First time, without the presence of your parents. Free! Finally, freedom! What happens? You were not as careful because you were not supervised. You were not careful because suddenly you had this new freedom. You could do what you wanted to do and there was no one around to tell you different freedom. No one in the passenger seat desperately trying to push their foot to the floor to try and slow the car down. You were free. Whenever we get our freedoms, our new freedoms, we have a tendency to abuse those freedoms. And Paul says, look, Your heavenly Father has reduced it to one overarching command. But because of certain restrictions have been lifted, don't leverage your new freedom for your benefit. Here's what he says. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 13. 
You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And we go, yes! Oh yeah! But, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. In other words, you're free. But you're not free for your sake. You've been resourced, but you're not just resourced for your sake. You have opportunities, but not just opportunities for your sake. You have entitlement, you have rights, you have privileges, but it is all not just for your sake. So don't stoop to, well, is it illegal? If it's not illegal, then it must be permissible. And if it's permissible, then it must be good. That's rubbish. It's, it, don't stoop to how low can I go. He says you've been given a brand new freedom. But I don't want you to consume it on yourself. Rather, and he goes on to the heart of Jesus' new covenant command. Rather, he, here's what I want you to do with your freedom. Rather, I want you to use your freedom. I want you to use your resources. I want you to use your margin. I want you to use all of your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. And then verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Serve humbly in love just as your Savior served you. But neither the law nor the charter of rights and freedoms can make us serve one another. You have the right not to. You have the freedom not to. But the question is, will you choose to? Unity can't be mandated. Unity must be chosen. And here is the most important part. Hold on to this one. Somebody has to go first. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. 15. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky. Then you will shine in the dark night that seems to surround us and envelop us. This is the flow of thought that leads us into our time of communion, our time of personal preparation, our confession, our repentance, our reflection, and the opportunity to recommit in our devotion to follow Jesus. On this road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ, we are being brought together into one. We find hope and freedom in the love of Jesus. That freedom guides us into the discipline of walking in the Spirit, staying tuned to the Spirit. And in participating in communion today, we are following the way of the Spirit. We are repenting from our sins, both the ones that are known and the ones that are unknown. Both the sins of commission and the sins of 
omission. We are recommitting to righteousness. We are renewing our faith. And then that enables us to once again receive Christ's sanctifying grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you have your cup, your bread, take it out now. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of your life. Thank you for the possibility of forgiveness for me. Thank you. We can partake. Verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we take the cup in remembrance of Jesus. And after we've confessed, after we've received forgiveness, we take the cup. In 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. 30, this is why many of you, many among you, are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. In some ways, we expect God to ambush us or astound us or to overwhelm us when we decide that we're going to go in pursuit of Him, we're going to go on a mission trip, we, when we undertake a pilgrimage or when we attend a special conference or a retreat. But how many of us look for the miraculous to happen on our way to work or to the grocery store or when cleaning the bathroom. Everyone. Everywhere. All the time. Pay attention. Look out. Look around. Open up. Go eyes up. That's your call.